Church, if you have a copy of God's Word, let's turn together to the book of Jude. The book of Jude near the end of the Old Testament. This morning we have the privilege of continuing our series, our book study through Jude. This morning our attention will be focusing on verses 3 through 4. The book of Jude, I want to begin by reading the first two verses, but we will be considering in particular verses 3 through 4 of Jude. Listen to the word of the Lord together. The opening says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy Peace and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality, and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. Let's pray together that God would bless the preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us in Holy Scripture. And we pray that this passage, this call to contend for the faith, would be ours to live out faithfully. We pray that You would bless Your church and honor Your name through the preaching of this passage. For your name's sake we pray. Amen. We saw last week the identity of the writer of Jude and to whom this letter is written. This is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, whose identity is known as a servant of the Lord, a servant of Christ Jesus. And he's writing to the church, to those who are called, loved by God, and kept As we get into verse 3, Jude calls his readers dear friends. And this expresses Jude's pastoral affection that will ground his earnest appeal for them to guard the faith. Dear friends, or some translations say beloved, is a description that Jude will repeat in verses 17 and 20. Beloved or dear friends carries forward the theme of love that we have already seen in the first two verses of Jude. That we are loved by God and loved is multiplied to us and we are the loved ones of God. In verses 3 and 4 we see the purpose, the occasion of the letter that the church would contend for the faith. As we see in verse 3, Jude was planning to write a general letter about their shared redemption in Christ. But as Jude becomes aware of the pressing threat of false teachers... He turns his attention to assessing the false teachers and calling the church to contend for the faith. The urgency of the moment required Jude to write a different letter. A letter constrained to encourage the church to hold fast to the truth. For Jude to shift gears like this indicates to us the impact of false teaching and teachers on the church. Based on how false teaching and false teachers are dealt with in the New Testament, we can conclude that persons who have authority in the church and who teach in the church, but who are ungodly in their behavior 
they pose one of the greatest dangers the church can face. As we examine verses 3 and 4 in Jude, I think there's at least three important questions that arise out of this text. The first is, what is this faith that Jude is describing that has been delivered to the saints? How did we receive this faith? And then why must we contend for the faith? And I hope to answer those questions by having us consider five truths on contending for the Christian faith. Five truths on contending for the Christian faith. Here's the first truth. Is that the faith consists of the essential truths of Christianity. The faith consists of the essential truths of Christianity. By essential, I mean that you have biblical Christianity with these truths, but you do not have biblical Christianity if you remove these truths. The faith described by Jude is the message of true Christianity that must be safeguarded. It's this body of belief that encompasses all the essentials of sound doctrine and of the gospel message. In the New Testament, we know that faith normally refers to the act of believing and trusting in God. But here, faith is the content of what is believed. The faith that is believed by all Christians. Why would Jude and other biblical writers call the Christian message the faith? Well, I think it's because the Christian gospel is characterized as a message that demands a response of faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the message itself could be called the faith. Jude uses faith as a summary of biblical Christianity. Paul does this as well. He does this autobiographically in Galatians 1.23 where he says, I formerly persecuted the church, but now I preach the faith I once tried to destroy. Paul will write at the end of 1 Timothy that to turn away from Christ is to depart from the faith. Where you find true Christianity, you find a set of beliefs and behaviors known as the faith. Though the Bible is a big book, 66 books overall, its teaching can be accurately summarized in the faith. And that summary has been recognized virtually everywhere biblical Christianity has existed. So Jude doesn't tell us all that is contained in the faith, but I want to do so for you. I want to give you a brief summary on what is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We believe in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the uncreated Creator. We believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency, and authority of the Scripture, the creation of men and women in God's image, the sinfulness of all human persons, the true humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ, who in the words of the Nicene Creed, because of our salvation came down from heaven, who was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary and became human. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose on the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. We believe in salvation from God's just wrath by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that the gospel is the only message by which persons can be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life with God through repentance and faith. We believe in the church, local and universal, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
who assembles for worship, who's commissioned to make disciples, and who is shepherded by Christ, the head of the church. We believe that upon the return of Christ, believers will be assigned to glory in a new heavens and a new earth. They will have a resurrection body. And we believe that unbelievers will be assigned to hell forever. That is in one sense a summary of the faith. A core set of truths that are non-negotiable for the gospel to be good news and for biblical Christianity to remain intact. And those core set of truths Jude describes here as the faith. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So the first truth about contending for the faith is it, is, it consists of these essential truths of Christianity. It, it describes what makes the gospel good news and what we must do to believe in that good news. The second truth that we see clearly in Jude 3 and 4 is that this faith was delivered by God. We know the faith as the faith because we have received it by way of divine revelation. According to verse 3, this faith is a faith that was once for all delivered. But the question we must ask is delivered by who? We find in the Bible human authors, but human authors who are inspired and who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Recall 2 Timothy 3.16, which applies to the, Old, to the New Testament as well as to the Old Testament, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. In our text... Jude writes this particular letter, both because he is genuinely compelled to write it, but also because he is led by the Holy Spirit to write this letter that we have today. The faith referred to in Jude 3 is the faith taught by Christ, extended through the apostles, and delivered to us in the Scripture, God's Word. This body of Christian faith was delivered by God, through the divine revelation given by the inspiration of the Bible. Contend for the faith, Jude says, that was delivered to the saints once for all. By the faith being delivered in the scripture, specifically through writing, the truth of God is preserved for generations after the death of the apostles. At the time of this writing, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, was alive. Paul oftentimes calls upon the readers to attest to the truth that he is making by speaking in person to the people that he's referring to. We, of course, don't have that privilege. But we do have the same truth known as the faith that the recipients of Jude has had because of the Scripture being delivered by God. The truth, the faith of the Bible being divinely inspired has numerous implications. First, it means that the truth of the Bible is objective divine truth. Although it's coming through a human author, it is coming as divine truth. By saying contend for the faith or contend for the truth, Jude means among other things that there is such thing as the truth. And it's defined according to its alignment with God's revelation. As a church, we believe that the Scripture consisting of 66 books of the Old and New Testaments is the infallible Word of God. It is verbally inspired by God and it is without error in all that it contains. So when we test a claim of truth, we test that claim 
based on how it measures up against what God has said and is saying through the Bible. The Bible as the Word of God is the authoritative norm of all truth. What God has disclosed to us in the Bible is the determinant for everything we believe to be accurate. For the faith to come from God means that it comes to us with His character, its tr- His trustworthiness, His perfection, His holiness. Next, for the faith to be delivered once for all by God means that it will not be changed by new revelation. God has spoken in His Word and through His Son, Jesus Christ. Once for all clarifies that the faith that was handed down to the apostles is the faith intended for the church for all time. Once for all means that the revelation we have in Scripture is sufficient and authoritative. So we're reminded this morning as a church that the Bible that we read from, that we know God from, that we sing about, that we preach from, this is a book that does not need a new and improved version. We're not looking for a revised version of the Scripture. Scripture needs no modifications, no additions, no supplements, no corruptions. God has spoken. The canon of Scripture, that's just a term that refers to the inspired and authoritative books that God has given us. This canon, this book, is what we need for life and godliness. We are not contending for a faith still taking shape. We are contending for a faith once for all given. We ought to know that faith. Praise God He has given it to us. This information is why Paul can conclude in Galatians 1.9 that if any man preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, let him be accursed. The theological and moral teachings of Scripture are enduring Scriptures because this revelation was once for all delivered. These are not teachings that are culturally conditioned or can be experientially reconstructed. As the church, what is theologically fashionable to the culture is irrelevant to the church because we believe that there is a faith once for all delivered by God. That truth remains the same forever. So today, just like in Ephesians 4, 5, we can say there is one faith, there is one Lord, there is one baptism. The once delivered faith is why we can attest to Jesus Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the reason why all of God's promises will hold true until the end. We as God's people do not add to Scripture and we do not take away from Scripture. We do not seek further revelation from God, but we attend to what has already come to us in the Old and New Testament and through Jesus Christ. We are looking to guard what has been entrusted to us, what has been delivered to us. We contend for a faith, in other words, not invented by the church, but received by the church through divine inspiration. We can also say this about the faith being delivered once for all time. For the faith to be delivered by God means that this is the message God has for sinners due His judgment. 
The Christian faith is not a man-made faith. We don't believe the gospel just because we believe it is the best way to get to heaven based on our own human understanding. We believe it is the only saving message of Jesus Christ because God has accomplished that in Jesus Christ and has revealed that to us. This is not one faith among many that God has revealed. This is the faith. This is not one Christianity among many Christianities. This is true Christianity. This is the faith once for all delivered. And if you're an unbeliever here today, for you to be right with God, what's most critical for you to understand is how God says you can be right with Him. In order for us to honor and glorify God, we need to know what God says about honoring Him. What God says the church is to be. What God says the church is to do. So if God has said that sinners can only be right with God through repenting of their sins and believing on Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Father who lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death for our sins and who raised victoriously from the dead, you need not look to any other message. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God has spoken. He has accomplished this work of salvation in the historical person of Jesus Christ who is alive and who will come to judge the living and the dead. Church, we are contending for a faith divine in origin. A faith delivered by God. That's the second truth. The third truth about contending for the faith that we need to understand this morning is that this faith contains doctrinal affirmations. It contains doctrinal affirmations. What do I mean by that? Well, to be a Christian means to believe certain truths revealed by God in His Word. That's not all that it means, but it is certainly what it means in one sense. What's amazing about Jude writing about contending for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all, verse 3, is that even in the first century, Jude recognizes that there is already a recognized body of teaching that all Christians were expected to embrace. Jude can urge the readers in AD 65 or so to contend for the faith, and Jude knows that his author, that his readers know what he's talking about. Notice that Jude does not extrapolate on heavily what the faith is because he knows the readers know what he means. There is a faith that is recognized at this point in the first century. A central aspect of the faith that we see in verse 4 is Jesus' lordship. These false teachers that we will get to in just a moment have denied Jesus Christ our only master and Lord. Recall that in verse 1, Jude describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is on the same level, sharing the same divine essence as God the Father. Verse 1. Calling Jesus our only Master and Lord is a significant theological statement. Jude says that Jesus is our only Sovereign and Master. He's applying language that's applied to God the Father throughout the New Testament and is used here to describe Jesus Christ. 
Master and Lord, referring to Christ, emphasizes His unrivaled Lordship. In the first century, it would mean that Caesar nor any other ruler is not the Supreme Lord. Jesus Christ is. The Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, is Lord and God. He is ruler over all. Which means that He is not merely our example. He is not merely a respectable teacher. Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ is to be more than admired. He is to be praised, worshipped, followed, loved, and submitted to as our Heavenly Master. Christ as Lord, we know from the Great Commission, has all authority in heaven and on earth. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow to Him. Every tongue will confess Him. As we zoom out and we think about Lordship throughout the entire Scripture, we would come to a text like that of Isaiah, where God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And we're trying to make sense of what does it mean that Yahweh is Lord in the Old Testament and that Jesus Christ is Lord in the New Testament. For the New Testament to name Christ as Lord is to say that Christ is Yahweh Himself. This is God the Son enfleshed. Christ is Lord because Christ is God. Christ as Lord conveys Jesus' sovereignty, His divine power. It's a remarkable proof of Jesus' divinity. That He shares the same essence as Father and Spirit. Of course, we know Jesus is the Lord of our lives. He is the Lord of the church. Like Jude, we too are slaves of Jesus Christ, our Master. As believers, we have surrendered our rights We submit to God in all things joyfully. We have been convinced that allegiance to Christ is better than allegiance to anything else. We obey our sovereign King out of gratitude and love for Him. Believing that Jesus is worthy of all of our service. To be a Christian means to call out to Christ as Lord in a Romans 10 type of way. But to do so ongoingly as well. In faith and in repentance. Becoming a Christian means no less than taking Jesus Christ to be your master. To forsake the slave trade of sin. And to turn to Christ as our new master and Lord. So friends, the faith contains doctrinal affirmations such as Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. The gospel is the only message of salvation. For for us to say that the faith contains doctrinal affirmations is to say that Christianity rests on truth. It rests on a definite set of beliefs that cannot be compromised on. Or else you don't have Christianity any longer. These crucial doctrines would be doctrines like the Trinity. The full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone and the authority of God's word. To be a Christian is to affirm those central doctrines of the faith. So despite how someone might live, someone cannot be a Christian and deny a central doctrine of the faith. They must seek to understand and embrace phrases used elsewhere in the New Testament such as the whole counsel of God, the pattern of sound words, the good deposit, the teaching. All of these phrases communicate that there is a theological body of beliefs that are critical to the nature of Christianity. 
Paul writes to Timothy and says this, If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Friends, even the scripture reading we read, we can discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We try to understand what the will of the Lord is. All of that because of the doctrine, the theology, the belief that God has given us through His Word. So the faith contains doctrinal affirmations. But we know that the faith is more than a set of beliefs. It also includes moral standards. This is the next truth on contending for the faith. The faith is those essential elements of Christianity. The faith is delivered by God. It contains doctrine and it includes moral standards. The faith is both theological and moral. The faith has definite content as well as clear boundaries in terms of how we live. Christianity consists of right beliefs and right behaviors that flow from those right beliefs. Throughout Scripture, we see that sound doctrine is meant to produce godliness. As the letter of Jude will teach us, this faith is a most holy faith, which makes the unholiness of the false teachers condemnable. Sound theology must be followed by obedience to God's commands if it is truly to be Christian theology. The gospel comes with moral implications and demands, and I would say it doesn't even... It comes with even more than that. It compels us to live a certain way. The very doctrine of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for sinners is what changes us to be able to want to live our lives for God. In conversion, in people becoming a Christian, it's not simply that they are convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. It's that they have eyes to see Him and love Him. The whole process of conversion is theological as well as moral. There's a heart change that gives impetus to how we live in light of the commands of God. Of course, much of Jude is focused on the immorality of the false teachers. In verse 4, we are introduced to the group of persons, some people, verse 4, the false teachers. It's hard to know exactly throughout the book of Jude the identity of these persons. They are obviously known to the recipients of these letters. They may have been traveling teachers who were able to gradually come among the people in deceit. But we are given a few descriptions of the false teachers in verse 4. Look with me. Some people who were designated for this judgment long ago, they have come in by stealth. They are ungodly turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. We see that these false teachers are condemned. Their identity was veiled by deception. They are godless. They pervert God's grace. And fifth, they deny Christ by their life. The key indictment throughout the letter of Jude is the lack of holiness experienced by the false teachers. As Pastor Stephen helpfully mentioned last week, Jude focuses on the immoral lifestyle of the false teachers and not necessarily their doctrinal errors. But let me say this just pastorally. Doctrinal errors oftentimes do lead to immorality. Compromising by way of doctrine oftentimes lead to people wanting to live a certain way in their sin. 
let me compromise on this doctrine so that I'm no longer guilted into living a way that I just don't want to live anymore. So although Jude focuses on the immorality of their lifestyle, they are still denying Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. We find here in verse 4 that the true character and motives of the opponents were hidden. They had come in by stealth. They were not recognized as who they actually are. They slipped in as pretenders. They appeared to be spiritual, but the truth of their lives contradicted their spirituality. We see that the false teachers are ungodly. This is a description that appears six times in the book of Jude. It means that they are godless. They live as if God, His ways, His judgments were not realities. They glutted themselves on the sins of the flesh. These persons twisted the doctrines of forgiveness and grace for sinful purposes. Grace to them was not a means by which the sinful desires could be put to death, but instead was a license to live however they wanted to, to gratify the desires of their flesh. They turned grace, Jude says, into sensuality. Sensuality throughout the Bible often denotes sexual sin, which Jude suggests in the letter also. You'll notice the close association with Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 6 and 7, as well as the defiling of the flesh in verse 8. Jude combining Master and Lord in verse 4 is meant to clarify that these false teachers, by their life, has denied Jesus' Lordship, the supremacy of God in their lives. They've denied Jesus' demand of obedience. By indulging in sin, they have served their fleshly passions as masters and not Christ. Martin Luther says it this way, These false teachers regard themselves and not Christ as master and Lord. The false teachers are in a class of people throughout history who have been judged and condemned by God for their immorality and that judgment will be of greater strictness because of their hypocritical role in the church. Jude says these people were designated for this judgment long ago. So Jude is assuring the readers that the appointed end of the false teachers is sure. They will be judged. They will be held accountable. Their condemnation has been determined by God who is sovereign over their rebellion. Judgment will be executed for their ungodly behavior as the Old Testament examples demonstrate in verses 5 through 16 of Jude. The false teachers, as we analyze them in verse 4, remind us that we must evaluate the Lordship of Christ in our own lives. Is Christ the daily Lord of our lives? Does our behavior match our belief? Is the Word of God authoritative in terms of our understanding and our way of living? For these false teachers, they were unable to forsake the lusts of the flesh because they actually were not in Christ. And it may be for some of you that the reason that sin has such a hold on you is because you do not have the power to forsake it. 
because you are not a new creature in Christ. The false teachers remind us that hypocrisy in the church is a terrible thing. To profess something, to teach something, and to live a different thing. What an awful reality. May it not be so in this congregation. We see throughout Scripture that over time, a pattern of disobedience contradicts professed belief. It calls into question who a person actually is in their heart. Just like Jude knew the actual identity of the intruders, we must be reminded that God knows who we are. Who we actually are. When no one is looking, we ought to realize that nothing is hidden from Him. Therefore, we must confess our sin. We must confess our hypocrisy and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Jude 3 and 4 teaches us a couple of simultaneous truths. On the one hand, it teaches that simply affirming a set of doctrinal teachings, regardless of how you live, is in fact false Christianity. At the same time, Christianity is not simply being a good person, regardless of what you believe. True Christianity is right belief, enabled by a changed heart in the gospel that produces right behavior. Not perfect behavior, but consistent, God-honoring behavior. A Christian is not just someone who lives a certain way or who thinks a certain way. A Christian is someone who believes certain things and therefore acts a certain way by the grace of God and out of love for God. So we need to ask this question. Can someone go to heaven who is unsound in their theology on the essentials of the gospel? The answer would be no. There there is a different gospel that condemns people to eternal hell. At the same time, we must ask, is it alone sufficient to hold to orthodox sound theology? And that answer too would be no. That right belief does not alone get us to heaven. You can affirm the gospel in its entirety on paper and your heart be far from God. Satan and his minions are sound theologians. But they do not love the truth. Christians are those who love the truth and who by the grace of God, though imperfectly, live out the truth of God in their lives. The Christian faith holds together theology, what we believe, with morality, how we live. And the test of Christian faithfulness, individually and corporately, is whether our beliefs and our behaviors align with the divine witness of the Old and New Testaments. If you've read the New Testament, you are probably aware that these false teachers in Jude are not the only false representatives of true Christianity in the Bible. We're aware that the world will oppose our message, but here Jude reminds us that there will be counterfeit attacks to the truth from inside the church as well. We contend for the faith from outside and from inside. Paul warns the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20 that men will arise speaking twisted things, trying to draw disciples after them. The apostle Peter says, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Jude is aware that the shameful examples of the false teachers would threaten the health of the church. And this leads to the fifth truth. 
The fifth truth, that the faith is subject to distortion. The faith is subject to distortion, and therefore we must know the faith and contend for the faith. Again, to contend for the faith means to maintain the truths and identity of the faith as it has been handed down from Christ and the apostles. We as a church, we as Christians engage in what Paul calls the defense of the gospel so that the gospel remains clear, so that the church remains a distinct witness to Christ and His glory. Again, Jude telling the church to contend for the faith indicates that this body of Christian teaching is recognizable. By the aid of the Holy Spirit church, we are able to discern truth from error, sound doctrine from falsehood, orthodoxy from heresy, because of the sufficient word of God. And we know because of Satan's ploys, this faith will be distorted. It will try to be perverted. It will try to take a different form. And if it takes a different form, it will severely harm the church. Therefore, we must contend for the faith. Throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul, there are numerous indicators of an agreed-upon faith. Meaning they, the early church knew the truth and they knew falsehood. They knew what was sound and they knew what was unsound. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul throughout his letters. Paul warns Timothy, If anyone teaches to you a different doctrine, he understands nothing. Paul tells Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. There was a standard of teaching to which the Romans were committed, as Romans 6 expresses. Paul charges Timothy to preach the word, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will wander away from the truth into myths. Paul tells Timothy Commit these things that I have taught you to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us. Paul commended the Corinthians in chapter 11, I praise you because you hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. We see from those examples that the New Testament is replete with a call to contend for the faith Because the faith is recognizable and the faith is subject to distortion. Now here's what we must understand as we kind of zoom out from this text and apply it congregationally. The truth of God should be defined and defended at every point and in every detail. Every doctrine is a precious doctrine. And yet what Jude is exhorting us to in contending for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. He is communicating to us our responsibility, particularly to first order, first rank doctrines. Not everything in Scripture makes up the faith. The faith contains the non-negotiables of Christianity. We believe more than just the faith, but not less than that. So though every teaching and every doctrine of Scripture is important, there are certain doctrinal truths that cannot be compromised on. And this introduces us to the topic of theological triage. Theological triage. How we discern what doctrines can and cannot be disagreed upon and the urgency thereof. If you have become a member in recent days, perhaps you were helped by that session on theological triage. But for us who have been out of that membership class for some period of time, 
Let's review it together. There are first-level theological issues that are most essential and crucial to the Christian faith. And yet, we can charitably and honestly have good conversation and disagreement on second and third order doctrinal matters. Scripture contains second order doctrines which can be disagreed upon, just we need to understand that that disagreement will probably, should lead to boundaries of membership between believers, i.e. we can't be members of the same church together. A second order doctrine would be something like baptism. We believe in believer's baptism. Our Presbyterian friends believe in infant baptism. There are also third order doctrines over which Christians can disagree but remain in close fellowship. Even in the same local church, we would put most of the debates over eschatology, for example, in this category. That we as members of this church, we can affirm together the bodily, historical, victorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we may differ over the sequence of Jesus Christ's return. But we can disagree about those things without interrupting our fellowship together. So the faith Jude refers to is a set of primary truths of Scripture which so define Christianity that to deny them is to deny the faith itself. That's the faith we are contending for. Because the faith is subject to distortion, you might be aware that the church has turned to a series of creeds and confessions throughout church history. The doctrinal affirmations of creeds and confessions are measures taken to protect the central core of Christian doctrine. Of course, creeds and confessions never stand above the Bible. They instead seek to be accurate and succinct articulations of what the Bible teaches. Churches have statements of faith, like we do at Liberty Baptist Church. The Baptist Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is our statement of faith. That's our attempt to understand collectively what we believe the Bible teaches about really important matters. And this is becoming increasingly more critical in our day, isn't it? Where it seems like the faith is being distorted from every point. We live in a culture that functionally denies absolute truth. We're going to have some difficulty in this day and age. In today's setting, just like the ages past, there are counterfeits to the faith. Scripture's teaching on homosexuality has been undermined. The exclusive saving work of Christ has been questioned. Health and wealth as an automatic entailment of belief in Christ has been posited. Men and women being created in God's image has been dismissed. So we must realize that there are variations away from true Christianity that create a new religion altogether. We are trying to protect the faith once for all delivered to the saints, biblical Christianity. What's amazing in this text, church, is similar to Galatians 1, Jude is giving this exhortation to the church at large. He's not writing to the elders, though the elders have a very important role in guarding and teaching sound doctrine. You'll remember Titus 1.9 that Paul tells Titus on the elders that are being appointed in Crete, that they need to hold fast to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to encourage with sound doctrine and refuse those who contradict it. Elders rightly divide the word of truth. But notice here, 
in verse 3, this is a faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. And it speaks, church member, to the important role that you have in guarding the faith. So if that faith is something that you are having trouble summarizing, understanding, we can all grow theologically. We are all theologians to begin with anyway. The question is whether we are sound theologians or not. But if if you want to take a greater role in terms of contending the faith, you might just ask after this service or in the days to come, ask a pastor or a church member, what is one book in the month of May that would help me theologically. In closing, I want to give just a couple of ways that we can contend for the faith. How can we as a church carry out this exhortation to contend for the faith? I'll just reduce it down to two. Appoint pastors who know the Scriptures and whose lives are pervasively marked by Scripture. Nominate, recommend pastors, follow pastors who we have a confidence by the grace of God will not lead us into falsehood. Secondly, continue to take in members who give evidence of knowing the faith and who submit to Christ's lordship. If you've gone through the membership process, in a membership conversation, we say summarize the gospel to us in 60 seconds or less. One of the reasons we do that is, one, do they have a right understanding of the gospel? But secondly, we understand from this text that every church member... Their role, their job is to contend for the faith. So we're asking questions in the membership process of what is this person's confession? Does their life align with their confession? What do they believe the gospel is? Who do they believe Jesus is? What is their understanding of God's word? Do they give evidence of someone believing in Christ alone for salvation? And are they taking God at His word? So when upcoming members meetings... You are contending for the faith by the members you add and dismiss. A question from this text is, where where does contending for the faith rank in terms of church priorities? Like, is this one thing we do among many? How important is this? Well, I think contending for the faith is a chief duty of the church because if we do not define and defend the gospel, it will not be long before the gospel itself will be compromised, before membership will be redefined, before the preaching and missions of the church will be significantly weakened. We know from from history, schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, which were founded to train ministers, are no longer standing for historic Christianity today, and and the same could be said of churches throughout the country and beyond. Jude reminds us that the task of contending is not an easy task. But it is a necessary task. The church is not temperamentally inclined to controversy. We are not to be contentious people, but we are contenders. We contend lovingly. We contend patiently. We contend winsomely. We contend scripturally. We contend prayerfully, knowing that God illuminates the truth in people's hearts. He alone can convince them of sound doctrine. We contend in the Lord's help. The church takes no joy in controversy for controversy's sake. But instead, we seek to contend because we are the Lord's ambassadors. Because we cannot cease to proclaim the fundamental doctrines 
of biblical Christianity. We understand that people are saved and sanctified by the truth. So church, if we are to contend for anything, it must be the truth of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. The reason we have a clear vision of the Trinity, of the Bible, of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, is owing to how saints of old contended for the faith. We have the book that we do in the Bible because people sacrificed to make sure that the faith was passed on. So friends, we must do our part. Let us guard the good deposit entrusted to us. By the grace of God, let us contend for the faith until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths on contending for the faith, how you have given us this essential body of doctrine, how you have delivered this to us with clarity on what to believe and how to live. We pray that this message, this book, would continue to bless our church for the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, we are now going to take a moment of silent reflection to think upon the sermon, to pray, to consider the truths of Scripture for our lives, and then we will close with our benediction.